New Consciousness Reviews and the Rising Stars Show. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Dr. Bill Thomas. Bill is a revolutionary who went from being an emergency room physician to the medical director of a nursing home in upstate New York. He is producing radical changes in how we take care of ourselves as we approach the end phase of life and successfully challenging and even disrupting long-accepted attitudes people hold about themselves getting older. He's been helping millions of people help themselves. He is currently conducting a 30-city tour around the U.S., dubbed the Age of Disruption 2016 Tour, to rally communities around a new and highly disruptive understanding and approach to growth and aging. He has authored a number of books, and his latest book is called Second Wind, Navigating the Passage to a Slower, Deeper, and More Connected Life. I am delighted to welcome you to the show. Bill, welcome. And thanks for having me on. Bill, I love this book, but I don't understand the connection between the title and the content. However, the content was really riveting and very motivating and eye-opening. So let's talk about that. You have this wonderful way of of overseeing the sort of flow of history focused Mm -hmm. primarily on the baby, baby boomer generation. Mm-hmm. how they arose, how the divisions among them arose, and how they have morphed to today mm-hmm. into the current sort of political landscape. Mm-hmm. That must have taken you a long time to wrap your head around, how to present it. it. I, actually, this book um, actually was, of all the books I've written, was the most challenging, I think because the canvas was the largest. And uh, I really, the book started, uh, as a lot of books do, you know, one day in a conversation with a friend. And uh, we both uh, were both actually members of that baby boom generation. And we both recognized that to a degree, demography is destiny. And um, we we sort of have handed down to us sort of a narrative about the post-war baby boom generation. But I wanted to go deeper and really explore that narrative from the perspective of age rather than from the perspective of youth, which is how it's usually done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you had some really illuminating distinctions between the three strands of 60s uh, thought. Yeah. Well, again, you know, people often, I found, uh, people would often speak of the baby boom generation as if it was one thing. And of course, we know uh, it was many things um, and continues to be many things. But I found three dominant subcultures uh, emerging in the 60s and 70s. The first and the largest uh, was actually what, at least in the United States, we call the squares. These were young people who were very much like their parents and thought like their parents and behaved like their parents and notably voted like their parents. And they were the most numerous. And then there was a, a group we call, in the book I call the, the uh, activists. And you, you, you know them and we we are them in some ways you know they were fighting for causes that they believed in 
But the most interesting group, uh, the group that I think actually had the greatest impact on the era was the smallest group, uh, the hippies. And um, the hippies did something brand new in the world, which was they actually opted out of the established life cycle and experimented with different ways of living outside of adulthood. And that, that was the craziest thing they did. Now, they also uh, gave rise to a uh, culture of art and experimentation. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And yeah, you know, how that, did that, how did that play mm-hmm. out later? Well, uh, <laughs> Were they forced but, underground? Know, oh, well, actually, at least in my reading, um, to a large degree, the, the, the hippie subculture, in the United States anyway, was, uh, was demolished, absolutely positively demolished, and every opportunity was taken to mock, uh, mock their art, mock their beliefs, mock their, sub, their cultural practices. Because I think, and this is what I argue in the book, um, maybe without intending to, the hippies actually offered a radical critique of adulthood. And, and really, for the first time in history, they were really the first people to say, adulthood not interested, don't want it, Um, I'd like something else. And, of course, the forces of established power in society did not approve of that at all. Mm -hmm. Now, you're using the term adulthood as um, the sort of sober individual who goes to the office, uh, (laughs) supports the family... Yes, responsible adulthood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because as you do point out in the book, the years go by for everyone, whatever they you think. They do, indeed. And, you know, uh, I, I think one of the, one of the most, I, it, you know, when you're writing a book, um, there's a certain unfolding that happens while you're immersed in the material, where in some ways the material writes the book. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to sit down and pound it out, but it, it, it's really the material that's leading you. And I, I realized that one of the things that um, the common narrative about the baby boom generation is, oh, gosh, they had their fun. <laughs> <laughs> then they grew up. And, um, in fact, I found out that that baby boom generation continued to exert massive influence on the nature of adulthood. And basically what they wound up doing was turning adulthood up to 11. And the, 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 the staid kind of gray flannel adulthood of previous times was made into a hyper-caffeinated, hyperactive, hyper-materialistic striving, aggressive kind of adulthood that offered no quarter to anyone. And that was also a creation of the post-war baby boom generation, mm-hmm. that, that kind of voracious <clears throat> adulthood. T- tell us about the, the, the three categories of the later or the current stage mm-hmm. baby boomers. Yeah. So, you know, uh, so uh, as I was sort of mentioning, you know, this voracious adulthood really served for a number of decades as a 
kind of a, a generational touchstone and, and um, the books and the movies and the music and everything sort of celebrated this hyper responsible, hyper productive life phase. But now we're beginning to see a new kind of fracturing in this generation, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> um, uh, so the first signs of fracture actually uh, are in what I refer to as the denialist subculture. And the denialists, as, as the name implies, um, they're looking at aging and going, no, thank you. I'm going to be rescued by technology. I'm going to be rescued by these cosmetics or this surgeon or I'm going to be rescued by this vitamin supplement. Something is going to save me from aging. That's the denialists. They're very small. They spend a lot of money. And they have a big influence on our culture. Mm. The largest group of these post-war baby boomers um, actually belong to what I call the realists. And these are people who don't like aging. They don't like the prospect of what lies ahead, but they're willing to do all the common sense things that ought to be done. They're willing to eat sensibly, wear sensible shoes, go walking, do puzzles, um, take their vitamins, all in secure in the knowledge that it's all going to go pear-shaped. But for now, uh, they're going to do what they can to fend off aging in a common sense way. And then finally, if I may, the, the people that I'm the most excited about, um, and this is the thing that I think your uh, listenership could really be interested in. There's a group of people who are actually flipping the script. They're actually enthusiastic about aging. They actually believe that aging is growth, and they're excited about what comes next. Uh, beautiful, yes. And you give uh, many examples, like the, the 13 indigenous grandmothers and... Uh, mm -hmm. I was very amused at your uh, mentioning of Deepak Chopra's early book called um, Timeless Body, Timeless Mind, and then yeah. showing, you know, thinking of a picture of Deepak Chopra then and Deepak Chopra now, he has not escaped aging. <laughs> no, no uh, you know, uh, exactly. He, he's a great example of a, a man who looks exactly the age that he is, mm -hmm. and um, I'm, he should be proud of that. Um, and the good news is that um, he didn't stop aging. I know it's ironic. Uh, it, it's, it's good news for him as a human being that he didn't stop growing and developing when he was 43 because he would have missed a lot. But perhaps he needed that kind of title to attract the eyeballs of the people who oh. needed to read his book. Yeah. Wow. That I will. Man, I'll tell you. If you propose positive ideas about aging, it is really hard to gain entrance into the cultural conversation. Mm. And um, that's, that's what I'm on about these days, is getting access to that conversation. Right. We were talking about uh, Deepak Chopra's book, but another influential figure, uh, almost an icon of what you would call the squares, and mm -hmm. the um, the middle group, the realists, perhaps. Oh, the realists. 
yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was Stephen Covey. Why? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Don't get me started. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, uh, why? Um, here's the, the, the uh, for, I know most people are familiar, actually. That's kind of the point. Most people are familiar I with. I had my own habits. daytimer and everything. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So um, here's the, here's the tremendous, tremendous irony of that man's life work and message. He, he, as a, as an individual human, he was in, incredibly committed to family and community and to authentic personal relationships. But in his work, his work actually drove a, a, a tremendous alienation of people from their own authentic self. And when you, when you read his books critically in retrospect, what you can really see is him arguing that your authentic self is not effective enough. It's not, it's not efficient enough that you need to, in, a, in other words, you need to allow him to inject his orthodoxy into your daily practice so that you can meet the standards that he was laying out. And, and so the, the, the terrible thing that happened was that corporations could see that this was a wonderful ideology for them because it made everything the worker's fault. Mm. Everything, it wasn't, it wasn't the company's problem. The problem was that you were not effective enough. And so there was this tremendous, millions of people had the blame, so to speak, placed on their shoulders for no, no valid reason, and not based on any evidence. And um, I, I kind of have an issue with that, I will admit it. But it, it's kind of part and parcel of the uh, pressure that people in the workplace feel to produce, produce, mm-hmm. produce. Mm-hmm. And there is a real pushback at this time of people saying, yes. hold on, you know, there yes. has to be more to life than that. I'm a human being. Mm-hmm. I have creative mm-hmm. urges. So mm-hmm. how does that translate into your vision of graceful aging? Well, that's, that's so what I'm, arguing for in actually is aging as an artistic act aging as a creative act aging as a radical act that which can properly understood undermine the cult of adulthood um this idea that your valid self your only true self that's worthy is your younger self aging offers you a chance to actually repudiate that false ideology and to actually build an authentic self that's exactly the same age you are and has exactly the same strengths and limitations. So I actually see aging as a, as a kind of sort of like a, a powerful, powerful clarifying force that when you understand it right, it leads you in radical directions. Mm. You know, um, we have so little time to talk with you. We're going to have to get you back, Dr. Bill. But uh, I want you to tell us about this um, <laughs> Chautauqua-type book uh, uh, bus tour that you're taking, barnstorming around the country. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I'm sort of, you know, I was just talking about aging as a radical act, and I've certainly established a lot of credentials as a physician and a faculty member and so on. 
They actually have walked away from medical practice and academia, and I've become a traveling thespian. Uh, my, radical, my radical act of recreation is saying, I'm going to uh, organize and stage nonfiction theater productions around the United States, and I'm going to use the power of theater and the power of creative collaboration not to tell people about a different kind of aging, but to show people. So we do a, a performance called Life's Most Dangerous Game. And the idea is that aging is the most dangerous game you will ever play. And if you want to play a dangerous game, you need to know how to play it well. And don't be afraid. And don't sit on the sidelines. But Im immerse yourself in the experience. And theater, it turns out, is way better than PowerPoint when it comes to that kind of thing. <laughs> so totally way better. So we, we travel on a rock and roll tour bus. We have a cast and we have crew and we have lights and sound and props and sets and costumes because we believe that this consciousness of a new kind of aging is going to be born at the local level. It's going to be born in a dark theater with people seeing, reflecting, and imagining a, a different future for themselves. Now, you touch very briefly in your book about some of the alternative forms of self-organization and uh, uh, community-based mm -hmm. uh, features that uh, people could engage in to age more gracefully and more supportively, mm -hmm. supportively mm -hmm. and supported. You were one of the founders of something called the Eden Alternative. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, that's right. What was that about? Well, well uh, so the world as we inhabit it, the culture that we inhabit, is organized around metaphors and narratives, as you know very well, because you, you spend a great deal of your time helping people explore that. But one of the metaphors of classical long-term care is that of custodianship, that old people are broken and they need a special kind of, of, of tending to in their brokenness. And the Eden alternative was a, is a radical alternative to that, and it says old people grow, old people change, old people develop, including old people living with frailty and dementia, and that our obligation is to create a garden that grows people. And if you think about the difference between the conception of a custodial institution and a garden that grows people, you can quickly see that, holy cow, there, there's a lot of difference there. That, the, that Those are not the same things. And that's what kind of excites me about the potential. If we can actually, and we have done it uh, in many places, reinvent long-term care, what a lot of people thought could not be changed, imagine what you can do in your own life. I was really impressed by the example you gave of the Iroquois uh, mm. uh, grandmothers, uh, yes. the, the elder women 
actually mm-hmm. were responsible for choosing the next chief and also for approving or disapproving the declaration of war. I mean, just imagine yes. what would happen in this country if we were able to I, institute such a thing. I would really love that. And I would point out that we actually have a historical experiment uh, in the Iroquois Nation territory. Peace abounded in that among the five tribes for 700 years. Wow. And uh, there's no, that's a, a remarkable achievement in human history. And secondly, the only reason that peace ended was with the arrival of Europeans at what the Iroquois called the Eastern door of their nation. Uh, when the Europeans arrived, the era of peace drew to a close. But I think you're right. Imagine a society where the grandmothers pick pick the leaders and have to sign off on the war. I think I think we'd be living in a different world uh, if we could pull that off. But it made wonderful sense because, as you pointed out in the book, they were able to see all the children of the village as they were growing up and assess mm-hmm. their character. You know, yeah. it, it's it's not a question of spin and how much money your pack pays <laughs> for television coverage. No, so they they were able to judge the young according to how they treated each other in the moment, and I think they relied on the fact that what they saw on the play play field, you know, was pretty much what they were going to get uh, in the tribal council mm. uh, later. Uh, and I, for 700 years, they were right. So. so what is your hope for this book? What, what was your intention in writing it? Well, I think, number one, um, I, I think a lot of the literature underplays the tremendous role that demographic changes, how demography changes our lives, how it shapes our lives. And I, I wanted a little bit of an antidote to the it's all about you uh, paradigm. Um, you know, we are all of us living in a certain point in this large demographic evolution. And some of what we experience is due to our own choices of all kinds. And some of it is really due to the world we were born into. And I, I wanted to put that back into the conversation that, that generational forces do have an enormous influence over how we experience youth and age. The other plea that you make that really resonated very strongly with me was that we as a society tend to throw away the accumulated wisdom or discount Mm -hmm. the wisdom Mm -hmm. of our elders. Yeah, we we actually, again, one of the problems, uh, people talk about aging a lot as if it's a problem. We actually have a, a tremendous youth problem and by that I mean uh, our culture has awarded a monopoly on virtue to youth. Um, so all, all things that are desirable are things that are associated with uh, a youthfulness. And age is left, in essence, bereft mm. in our culture. And what I argue for in the book is, like, uh, let's balance this a little better, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Youth has lots of great things about it. I'm, I'm totally Absolutely. ready to... It, yeah, it's so it's fascinating wonderful. to see our young people supporting Bernie Sanders. Now, um, yeah. we are coming to the end of our segment. Unfortunately, we'll have to have you back. So where do okay. people go on the web to find out more? 
there's a, a, if you want to see us, because we're probably coming someplace near you, uh, you go to Dr. Bill Thomas. That's not too hard. drbillthomas.org. And you'll see where we're going to be and when we're going to be there. If, if any of your listeners, I always come up to the lobby after the show. Love to have your listeners come up and say hi uh, as we're out on the road. <laughs> that would be great. And then secondly, if you like to read about the revolution, uh, changingaging.org. Changingaging.org. Dr. Bill Thomas, author of his book, Second Wind and uh, Thespian Extraordinaire. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ray. Goodbye. Bye-bye.